0: Welcome to the show. I am so over the moon excited because today I am sharing my friend and the Autistic Art Club founder and hostess with the super mostest, Zoe McCormick. I am super excited to have her. She has created the most beautiful, special, and truly unique spaces called the Autistic Art Club. I'm in it. I am like, i told her i'm the number one fan i'm always running around inviting people all over the place to come join us because it is so amazing she has put so much of her talents her time and her heart into this guys welcome to the show i want you to meet zoe mccormick welcome to the mind your Autistic brain talk show the talk show for late-identified autistics, where each week you will hear the autism journey of another late-identified person, including the hardest part, the best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week and don't miss these special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostess, Social Audie. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Zoe, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for saying yes, because I know sometimes we've got busy lives and spoon spoon allotments. So I'm super excited that you're here. Zoe, Share with everybody what the art club is. How did it come about? What was this beautiful, amazing idea that you had that, that came to life?
1: Um, so, I guess, like, when, like, so I guess when I first got diagnosed with autism, I was really looking for, like, some sort of, like, peer community supports. Um, and, like, there is like some Facebook groups here and there but I felt like there was nothing really that I was particularly looking for and then kind of at the same time I was um attending like um different support groups for my mental health so I would have been going to like recovery based um peer support groups for my mental health and I felt like I felt like there was like the autism stuff and my mental health stuff, and I feel like there was nothing that kind of like brought the two together. Um, and so I guess then I just decided to set up the Facebook group, the Autistic Art Club, where I a kind of people who have autism or autistic like art can like join the Facebook group, and like that was grand, and it was like growing and growing, and then I just felt like I really wanted to like meet these people <laughs> somehow. And, like, I don't have a background in art at all. I'm just, I just really love art, and it's really helped me in kind of my own recovery and just managing kind of my life. I just feel like it really helps me. So, I just decided to run a, like a pilot kind of four weeks. And um, I just came up with like really easy activities and kind of just see who would come. Um, and like loads of people came. So, and um, yeah, so it's kind of just been going since then. And like, I mean, a lot of the people who come have been there from like the very first one. Including mean yourself, I think you came to the very first one too. Um, and like, you know, I suppose it really is just like a passion thing for me. Like, I'm not an art teacher, I'm not an artist, I have absolutely no art training. Um, so I just kind of use different ideas. Um, that I've come across or things that I think would be cool for us to try um, and go with that I feel like with the art club the art is nearly kind of secondary to it like in in what happens in the art club like it's really just about coming along meeting other autistic adults and just ranting about our lives or not or just having your mic and camera off and just listening to everyone Um, I feel like that art is a really good way for us to like meet because the pressure is off. You don't like, you don't have to talk if you don't want to, you can talk for the whole time if you want. Like it's, um yeah, so it's kind of, I feel like it's become very much like a peer support group um for autistics that kind of incorporates art
0: into it. It totally has. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's like made Saturdays so special to me is because You know, for those four weeks, I'm like, I get just to go hang out with my friends and like create stuff because I don't always have time during the week, or I I do have time, I don't choose to make time. There's a difference. I don't always (laughs) choose to allocate my time in that way. Although I love it. And it's one of the things that really restores me. But it's also the restoration of the connection with my now group of friends because I've made new friends and it's a global community, which is really, really fantastic because you're in Ireland, I'm in the United States. there's people from yeah. all over that join us yeah. and it's just really fun to not only create some really neat projects and share it, but what I love is just seeing how each person approaches a particular subject or topic. I mean, you know, when we did like just the bees or just when we just do anything. I mean, just to see how each person approaches it with different materials, different medium, um, what people choose to focus on, like for the detail. I mean, it's just really incredible to me. I just love seeing all the, the, the things that come about at the end, but it's the conversations that happen in between that are just so amazing.
1: Yeah. And I think the special thing as well is like, you don't have to be an artist to come along. Like so many people come along who haven't picked up a pencil since they were in school. Like it's not, you know, we have people who are professional artists, but we also have people who like aren't, or like who only do art at the Autistic Art Club. And yeah, that's like what me. I love. <laughs> <play> it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, is. it is fantastic, and that's what I love too. Is that. It's, it's structured in a way that like is truly speaks to my spoon allocation. It's like, okay, here's four weeks and we're going to take two weeks off and we'll do four weeks and we'll take two weeks off Mm because everybody needs that break. Everybody needs that downtime to not have, even if you love and enjoy something, just the obligation of it sometimes is like stressful Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me. I don't know about anybody else. I think it must be you too, because you you were pretty smart about thinking through that. (laughs) <laughs> but it's just so wonderful. I mean, I, and that's the thing. It's like, I have always been just a huge proponent for speaking out to say everyone, everyone is an artist in some way. We are all creating, not just in paint or pencil, but in food, in clothing. And the way that we arrange our bookshelves, everything that we do in our life in some way, in some aspect, we are designing, arranging, being intentional about curating the visual or even the tactile. I mean, if you collect squishies and you love the way different things feel, you're an artist. You've just created this tactile experience. I mean, if you have just this very narrow um, definition of what art is you're really missing the creative rest in your life, right?
1: yeah, and I think sometimes I think the way kind of art is introduced to us kind of probably puts us off as adults, you know, like it's you know when you do art in school, like you're graded on it, and so like I think that kind of makes us have a very like you know, oh, I can't do that because like you have to be good at art to do art, um but you know like i i um i never did art until last year so and like i found you know it's one of those things the more you do it like the, the better you're going to get it's not nobody just you know it does photorealism on their first go um you know
0: <laughs> exactly um, <laughs> and it's and, and that's the thing too I love about how you have sort of set up this this container this vessel of just come in just enjoy it just try it, do it what do it the way you want to do it you don't have you want to share it great if you don't want to share it that's okay because you've approached it or I feel like you've approached it in the way that is just hey this is just for you to come and just be you just connect with a part of you that that maybe you haven't been connecting with for a while, or, or just come have fun, or just you didn't have to have fun. You just come up and be. <laughs> you could just show up yeah. and be. You know, you yeah. don't have to turn your camera on. You don't have to turn your mic on. You don't ever have to say anything. You don't have to engage. But if you just want to hang back, that's cool too. You know, and yeah. I think that's so important because we really do. We get, we we had this internal judge where it's like, yeah my stuff doesn't look nearly as good as their stuff does. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not very talented. I'm not very creative, because that's not what this is about, really. You know, like you started with, it was like, how do I take my mental health? How do I take my need for expression or expressing myself or my feelings? How do I bring that together? And really, that's what this does. This gives this amazing place to just come and sort of have some time together, have some connection, have some expression of yourself in whatever way that works for you. And it's mental health. <laughs> it is. Yeah.
1: And I think kind of my main ethos kind of with setting it up is that it, it's like includes as many people as possible. So like, I know we have, like, we go on the zoom, and we do the zoom, like some people have their camera off, some people have their mic off, some people just, chat through the chat or whatever. But then there's other people who like find the idea of a Zoom absolutely terrifying. Um, And so I always kind of set it up in a way that they can still participate without going to the Zoom. Um, and I always kind of try and explain as much as possible as to like how it kind of runs. Um, because like there are kind of go a few people that would have kind of made, like emailed me like what they did and then like I had, there have been some people who did that for a few weeks and then they came to a, a Zoom, you know, like, so it's just, I think it's really done in a way that works for autistic people in that, you know, there's not just one way that we do things. Like we all, we're, like, I don't even know how I'm doing it because I'm so anxious myself. Like when I go to other Zoom meetings, I'm like, oh God, I'm not going to say anything. Um, So like, I don't even know how I'm doing it, but I feel like so many people get benefit from it that I just feel like okay this is something that has to continue um and yeah I guess like for anyone who like would like to come but wants to do it in a different way like I'm always open to kind of like shifting things around or having people engage in whatever way that they feel they can.
0: I think that's so great and I I noticed that and I liked that and that was one of the things I'd even shared with several of my Friends that are just like, yeah, I don't do Zoom, Carol Jane. You know I don't do Zoom. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, but the really cool thing is Zoe does like this little blog article that she sends out on Friday. And it's got all the stuff laid out. And you can just get that. You don't have to go to the Zoom. You don't have to people it if you don't want to people. If you don't want to people, you don't have to. And, you know, I'm always telling everybody, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. (laughs) Nobody can. Nobody can make you do anything but you. You don't have to. (laughs) And I love that because you really do. And you reach out. You're just like, hey, if you just want to email me your stuff, you don't even have to share it in the Facebook group. You don't have to post it on Instagram. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to participate and and sort of have something to kind of guide your art, because sometimes having those prompts just sort of frees you from having to like make a decision on that, you know. And I appreciate that. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's kind of like here's an activity you could do and if you want to do it, do it. Um and I think like I suppose um I've had other kind of groups reach out to me and ask me how I'm making it so inclusive and I'm like when you run an event, you can't just have one way that people can engage with the event. You need to have several different ways. Um you can't like, you know, so many events are just like here, you go to this and that's it. Um but even I know people have asked me if I will do like YouTube videos of instructions, which I, I plan to do in the future, but I just need to get like the proper equipment and uh, all of that. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of a key, key point when we're putting on events is to have several, think about several different ways that you can you can access people through that event.
0: That's really important. And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes an autistic led autistic event versus a non-autistic led autistic event. It's just like, that's one of the things that I am so try to be so aware of in mind your autistic brain. I started the blog and started, you know, and my friend Becca is helping me do transcriptions of the talk show because that's what people needed. That's what people in the community had asked for. You know, and it's, we all have our own communication styles or preferences. And the thing is that they vary. They are a wide variance. And also it's just about your comfort level to engage in things. And it's like, you know, you made a really good point earlier that you're you're anxious and you're not necessarily comfortable. And you're like, how in the world am I doing the Zoom? Why am I doing this? This is not the most comfortable <laughs> thing in the world for me. But it's the why. It's, it's your why behind that that makes the difference. Just like for me, I'm like, I don't want to have to get on camera all the time. I don't want to have to go talk to lots of people. I mean, I love to talk. I love to visit, but I don't want to do it all the time. It drains me. I'm exhausted. But what I look at, you know, I don't necessarily always have time to want to sit down and s- intentionally write something. You know, some things it's hard to just get my thoughts and my words. Other days it's easier to, you know, talk on camera. Other days it's easier to write. It's never a consistency. Thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) to the hot mess in the handbag that I am. But it's the why, you know, we do things because Mm. we know it has a greater purpose and it's not about serving ourselves. It's about serving and being of service to other people. And you do that. You do that, Zoe.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I guess that's what really keeps me going is, um, is that other people like need it as well and like benefit from it so much. And like, even when I take like the two week breaks, I always feel so guilty. I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to be like, what am I going to do on Saturday? Um, But like, I need to I need to set it up that way so that I have a break and that like I get to like okay, I don't have to
0: do Zoom this week. Um, okay, so I, I, don't, helps, feel yeah. don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty because <laughs> the rest of us are like, oh, I can't wait till two weeks, but right now I need the weekend. I need this break. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so don't feel bad. We need the break. We okay. need to. <laughs> Okay. We're with you. We're with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Zoe, what is your autism story? How did autism come into your life and your world? How did you learn that, hey... Autism might be me. Um,
1: I guess my story, I feel like it's really kind of unique. Um, I So well, in ways, um, like, so I spent like 10 years in and out of mental health services being diagnosed with like everything. <laughs> um, and the treatments just never really, they might've treated like one aspect of an issue that I was having, but never really fully kind of explained. Why, you know, I, I really struggled in school. I left school early with, like, no qualifications. You know, I, like, I moved to London when I was 16 and was like, okay, this is, this is going to be my life now. And, like, I just, there's been really drastic things that's happened in my life and I could never really figure out, like, why. Um, and so then last year, um, I had spent three months in a psych ward, like, really, really depressed, suicidal, everything else. Um, And when I came out, I got this psychologist, this clinical psychologist, and um, I wasn't really sure even what to talk to her about. I was just I I had no idea how to be in the room. Um, And then after a few sessions, she was like, I think you might have some sort of social communication issues. And I was like, "Okay." she never mentioned autism. But like I Googled it as soon as I got home and like autism is what comes up. so it was then when I was starting to think, oh, okay, she thinks I might be autistic. Um, so I went through the assessment and like, yeah, I came up really high on kind of all of the like tests and everything else. So and you know, like she had to like speak to my mom about like myself growing up and everything like that. And like, in my mom was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, it kind of happened that way. I was just really lucky that I um, was assigned a psychologist who happens to work with autistic teenagers in her other job. Um, so I was just really lucky that she flagged it because um, I wasn't self-diagnosed. I Like I had learned about autism in college, but I had never thought of myself as autistic ever before that. So I guess once that happened, then I really started to I suppose like I feel like diagnosis gives you like a little toolkit on like how to kind of manage different things that you're struggling with. And I felt like then by like looking at my sensory needs and that kind of thing, which I'd never looked at before, really helped me manage my kind of overwhelm. And like this kind of I had this kind of pattern of like loads of production, really, really productive. And then a crash, and then really productive again, and then a crash. So I feel like they kind of really helped me figure out like to how to prevent those crashes. Um, and I think with my mental health has been pretty pretty okay. Like kind of since then, since I've been kind of working on my sensory kind of I suppose my sensory health. Um, so yeah, it kind of happens that way, kind of through through crisis. <laughs>
0: So many of us come to it that way, Zoe. You're mm-hmm. not alone. So many of us come to it through major burnouts, through, you know, attempts at suicide or just real mm-hmm. hardcore ideation. It's just mm-hmm. that you're just sucked down into that mudslide where you just can't seem to get going. And just like the more you mm-hmm. try, the more stuck and covered in muck you get. And it's just feels really overwhelming. And at that point, sometimes it's just like, for the first time, you say, hey, something's not right. I've been holding this in for like 40 years. Could somebody help me, please? And it's, it's yeah. finally at that point that you get an answer. You get some causation for why. It's been so flipping hard <laughs> and exhausting. <Yeah. laughs>
1: Yeah, I know because I felt like my kind of little narrative about me in my head was like, you're like a half person. You are like, there's something about you that's just, this world is just difficult. And I could never quite figure out why that was. Um, I was like, why did I struggle so much at school? Like, I was good at school, but like, I would just refuse to do things for like a really logical reason. Um, and, like, my psychologist was like, yeah, it's because you're autistic. You had this, like, overly logical explanations for things at, like, 14. Um, <laughs> and, like, you know, I never understood why I couldn't just, like, go with the grain and just, like, you know, just do the things you're expected to do. Um like it never it just never made sense to me why I was like that. So like then when I got my autism diagnosis, I was able to like completely reframe everything. It's like you're not just like a bad, like bold, bad behaved child, you know, you like you literally have another way of thinking that nobody knew you had. Um so like yeah, it just it made so much more sense for
0: me afterwards. So Zoe, if you had to reflect back over your autism journey to this point for you what has been the hardest part or the biggest challenge
1: um i'd say just the the mental health crisis that i had like um from about 14 years old like i would have like i've attempted suicide maybe like 15 times um you know i was um like i've had really bad periods of um suicidality like on my last one I was suicidal like actively suicidal for nine months um and like those periods were just so tough Um, just feeling so low and not knowing why and not really not even knowing how to come out of it um and I suppose like looking back um you know when I'm in those periods I'm putting me into a psychiatric ward which are very unpredictable they're very loud there's lots of alarms going off all the time there's lots of people um it's like i can see now how that would actually make me worse not better because um just the whole sensory environment of a hospital is not ideal um and you know just i suppose yeah the hardest thing and like the loneliness of it um, like I went through my whole college degree and I didn't make any friends, and I wasn't really sure why and um, so just the kind of loneliness of like why do I struggle so much um, and not not having the answers
0: uh, Zoe, I know that you have a background in policy mm. <laughs> <I> <laughs> so <do. laughs> having having gone through that experience and i know you you wrote a beautiful article about your experience in the irish mental health care system and some of the Mm. experiences that you had were not positive yeah you know you had some really positive and helpful beneficial things like your 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 identification that came out of that but you also had some pretty tough experiences so my curiosity is because i know your heart and I know that you you are really one to speak out and want to, to help change the way things are. With that background and, and policy and reform, what would you like to see change with how the mental health care system operates, especially when it comes to people with sensory differences and sensory challenges? Because that, truly, yeah. is one of the hardest things is you need help yet you're put into an environment that is probably the most toxic sensory environment that does not aid in your recovery what are some of your thoughts on that i would love to know
1: yeah um i guess like that's kind of two questions because there's like what i would like the mental health system to look like but then also um you know autistic people in the mental health system as it exists right now um so, I suppose like autism, like my psychiatric nurse never learned about autism when she was in college, and I think so many of us you know autism and mental health overlap so much that really the there there needs to be more education around that at the- their kind of college level um and like for kind of all of those professionals that would be in those spaces like you know occupational therapists psychiatric nurses um, social workers whatever and that education not just needs to be about autistic children but like autistic adults too because the majority of them will be working with autistic adults um, so that's kind of a key issue and like I have a brilliant psychiatric nurse who works with me every week she's never um. She, she doesn't know anything about autism. Like she's just trying to like educate herself as she goes along. um. And I think that's a big failure. Um. And I think if we were to educate more of those staff around autism and, you know, around autistic women, autistic adults, I think a lot of us might be picked up quicker. Um, instead of going through these like massive crises and like, you know, and I mean, the truth is that some of us don't make it through. Um, that point. So I think it's really, really important that the education starts um, when they're training. Um, in terms of the mental health system, I suppose I would kind of be of more, like I don't agree with any force or anything like that happening within the mental health system. I think that and um, the patient's voice is the most important. Um, and, you know, I experienced some things that were kind of forced on me uh, in hospital and I would be like very, very strongly against those things. So I think um, in terms of um, met the mental health system, the patient's voice needs to be the primary um, primary decision maker in their care. Um, and, you know, it's kind of messy. Like some patients have a care plan. Some patients don't. Some patients are allowed. Um, outside for a walk. Some patients have never been offered or asked about um, the privilege. So I feel like it really depends on kind of who your doctor is, on what type of care you get.
0: Um, and so Whoa, there's can no pause for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pause for a second because you just said something that's just wow the privilege to go outside. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really Um, a privilege to be able to go outside? Like that's that's but that is honestly the the belief and the mentality in that situation is that it's a privilege for us to allow you to go outside instead of looking at it as that is really a necessary part for most humans to be able to go outside. Oh, Joey, yeah. man, that's just, ooh.
1: Yeah, and I think... That, that right problem, there. <laughs> like with our, the way you're treated when you're in mental health care, like before um, I was hospitalized the last time, I spent three years on a degree learning all about health policy, you know, learning about the doctor-patient relationship and the politics of that. And, um, you know, and I was learning all about, like, paternalism and healthcare care and how, you know, you know, doctors will make decisions on... The, the best of, of your behalf, and then when I was hospitalised myself, it felt like all of these things were—I could see them happening to me. um And you know, while I, I'm, I feel like I may have been treated slightly better than other patients because obviously my education was known to my mental health team and everything. Um, but I still very much felt like you can't say too much or you can't oppose too much you have to kind of tread very carefully um and yeah you're kind of you're just you're not seen as like a human who's just trying their best um you know you're seen like I remember times where I was having like I had a self-harm episode in the hospital and the nurses will be like now Zoe you're in hospital people in hospital don't do that and it was really like well yeah we do that's kind of why we're here um and like you just be really talked to in a really condescending patronizing way and um there's just I speak a lot about just the lack of care that exists in mental health care because like you know if you were like if you were sick in a you know say you broke your leg The nurses would be so caring and so nice. Like, oh, are you okay? How are you today? Whereas in psychiatric care, it's like nobody really asks you how you are unless it's to tick a form, tick a box on a form. You know, like it's just um, missing
0: humanity.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like they leave their humanity at the door and they walk in and they don't look at the person. As yeah. a person, they look at them as a chart. They look at them mm. as a problem to solve. Mm. They look at them as a broken, flawed, or a person that isn't contributing to society. And that term yeah. really, oh, I've heard it used. It's like, mm. oh, they're not contributing members of society. And I'm like, are you kidding me? are you kidding me? I mean, really? And when you say, you know, I was in healthcare and healthcare, really? We, we just, it's like an oxymoron in the way that it's applied today because care is yeah. not part of it in so many aspects. It's like, sure, we're caring in some respects because that's what we agree to. And that's what we think should be done. And it's, you know, when you look at it and you make such a good point, it's, Sometimes physicians and caregivers, and I use this word very loosely in this in this context, caregivers make decisions that they think are best for the patient because they are not asking the patient. They don't care. They have deemed the patient somehow incapable of or that their opinion isn't valid enough to make their own decision or have input on what happens in their own lives. Because you weren't somehow strong enough to hold it together and not have a mental break. Somehow you are no longer valid and and have the ability to make your own decisions. That just is, oh, it's such a broken system and we got to do something to fix it.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. And I guess like you know yeah they they make decisions for you they don't ask you um but it's very much like just part of the culture that exists um and their training like I've seen a research study recently that like came to the conclusion that compassionate care after self-harm um reduces um the incidence of self-harm and I was just like Do we really need a research study in 2021 telling nurses to be compassionate to their patients in emotional
0: distress? (laughs) And yes, and I'm going to tell you why. (laughs) Because there is this whole other side where they're researching how you can be very direct and not be overly compassionate or overly sensitive. And I have heard a nurse tell a patient. After they had attempted suicide, she looked at the patient and said, you have no right to your life if you're going to throw it away. You are wasting your life and you don't have the right to do that. It's just... The patient eventually said that that was the one thing that that kept him from attempting suicide in the future because he kept thinking about how mean she was and how, you know, she had said to him, you don't have the right to waste your life. But there, it's like, where do we find the balance? Where do we find the balance between just being kind and being compassionate in our care? Yeah. And also just helping someone to heal and guide them to a a better place, because that's really all we're all looking for. I don't care what your neurotype is. I don't care what your ability or disability is. That's all we all are looking for. We're looking for love. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for compassion and understanding and connection. And those are all things that are not a privilege
1: yeah yeah no absolutely and I feel like those values are completely missing from you know our care systems um you know even like any like the mental health system the disability system it's just all very paternalistic there's it's all very formal you know like you have to see a psychiatrist if anyone's been to have an assessment with a psychiatrist it's like sitting with a lawyer um
0: <laughs> boy did you nail that one it's it's like interrogation 101 yeah it's like okay um, I didn't feel like I was being attacked till I walked in your office <laughs> <laughs> thought I was supposed to I walk know. out of here feeling better
1: <laughs> and it's just like I also feel like you're you're not gonna get the the most out of the patient that you want if you use these just tick box ticking methods um it just feels very um i don't know what the word is but it just feels very like clinical and sterile yeah sterile yeah (laughs) um and i always feel like you're probably gonna get more from a patient if you just throw away that form and just sit down and just talk to them look them in the eye um and just really find out. And like, I know when, like there are certain health professionals that have done that with me over the years and I will never forget them. Like I'll always remember how they made me feel, um, like they made me feel heard or they just talked to me about something random. You know, they weren't like looking at me like I was like dirty or that I was like wasting their time. Um, you know, people who just really heard me and how difficult I was finding things. Um, I feel like we need more of that.
0: I think we need more of that everywhere. I really (laughs) do. I really do. We need more of that in every aspect of our lives. Zoe, I love that you approach it and really think about it because that's one of the conversations that I've had with a friend of mine whose um, spouse is a physician. And in medical school, nothing is taught other than this one little section not even a full chapter about autism what it is and it is not even accurate <laughs> it is so outdated <laughs> it is so narrow in its scope and if you go back to the training the education portion of where are the medical professionals what are they learning in the very beginning what are they learning about neurotypes. What are they learning about how the diversity in neurotypes also impacts the physical body because those two things are directly connected. But it's not taught. Even no. in osteopathic medicine, even in osteopathic medical school where you're not you're learning more about treating a whole patient and not just the individual organ like in a traditional medical school, it's still not taught to the degree in which it should be or could be. And some of those, after having worked in administration in a hospital, that is all a hospital is. It is nothing but tick boxes, following rules that the government sits down or insurance companies are the bigger one. Insurance Mm -hmm. companies sit down and dictate what patient care and treatment looks like. And in my book, in one of the the things that i I am always speaking out, and trust me, I got in some really hot hot water speaking out in some of these meetings about how we were applying what was being dictated to us by insurance companies and the federal government on how we treated how our care plans were set up for patients and for the for our staff to implement. Yeah. Because they were broken and they did not serve the greater good. They didn't serve the patient. They didn't serve the caregivers. They didn't serve the families. They didn't serve the hospitals. And all so often it always came down to, are we profitable? Mm,
1: yeah. I mean, that's and the medical big Medical schools are the same.
0: Yes. Yeah. Medical schools are the same. They're not in it for the education. They're in it for the profit of it. They're in it for how can we further our education dollars and how do we have an impact in the medical field with our students it's not about how are we impacting people
1: yeah yeah and I think that's a really sad thing I think because medicine is so in you know inaccessible I know here like it's really expensive you have to study for years and I feel like the like there's the wrong type of people involved in it so like you know, when we have like issues that are very much related to poverty and socioeconomic status, you have these physicians that really don't truly understand what it's like to be um in that position. Um, So, yeah, totally understand. And I suppose on the kind of note of, you know, all these forms that are just like dictated to us by somebody else, I'd love to see a care plan that is created by us in that. When you set up your care plan like the patient the autistic person the mentally ill person decides what's going to be on that care plan and what's not on it and what is um because i think that is the only true way we can have a true care plan because at the end of the day like i'm the only one who has to stick to the care plan um so you know so often i was just like handed this piece of paper with like my goals on it that hadn't even been discussed with me um and it's just it's just very tick boxy
0: like yeah that's done now um you know <laughs> you see me grinning i am just like i'm busting over here because you are so so right zoe mccormick your task and your challenge should you accept it is that
1: <laughs> seriously mm.
0: Seriously, I'm not kidding. You are the person to do it. You are the person to create that care plan, mm-hmm. a real care plan. Because think about it an IEP that a child, a parent, and a child get in school, it's the same kind of care plan as the crap that they hand us when we're in a hospital. It's, Mm. this is what I think your goals should be. This is going to get you to where you need to be. This is going to do this, this, and this for you. Yet you've not had absolute zero buy-in or input. Or if you did, it was really just so you could validate what they said you should do. Mm. It wasn't ever asking you. Because as we, as I've learned, as I share in Mind Your Autistic Brain, if you don't have a why, if you don't, If you haven't chosen your reason or purpose or your why for doing something, you have no driver. You have no motivation. You have no reason to do something. Mm. And you're going to hand me a care plan that I have had no participation or very little engagement or involvement in creating. And you want me to follow it and do it because that's what's going to be best for me. But you've never asked me what I want. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I've been on yeah. a soapbox today. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I will not no. apologize because this needs to be talked about. Yeah. Um, and I suppose
1: I do talk a lot about that kind of stuff because um, I think unless you've been a patient in a psychiatric unit, especially an inpatient, um, you don't really realize how important like these things are um and like you know that's just one example like the care plan um and like I was one of few patients that actually had a care plan there were so many other patients that didn't even have a care plan so it's just so ad hoc um and like you know I had a care plan but it was given to me um whereas other people maybe there was a care plan they weren't even given it I don't know um but there's just like these small little things that mean so much um and at the end of the day like it's your recovery it's it's your life it's what you need to work on um and I just feel like you know maybe it's easier for them to just write it up and then it's done but really to have proper like meaningful care means that I won't be coming back in like a month or two again in crisis. You know, there's things that we can do that really put the patient's voice at the center of their care Um, and it means better health outcomes. So um, yeah, stuff like that really annoys me.
0: All right, so since we're on the topic, let's just go deep. You ready? (laughs) (laughs) I, I know, I know that you have thoughts on this one. Intake, patient intake, and how the humiliating, dehumanizing, stripping of everything that is you, your shoelaces, your belt. I mean, you can't even wear certain clothes. Then you're left with just feeling horrible. You can't have anything, no personal items. Um, Your family can't bring you certain things. You can only see your family on certain days at certain times it is worse than prison yeah it truly yeah. is
1: yeah that process is so like that's it's traumatic it's tra- yeah it is traumatic and um you know i've had conversations with um someone i met in in the psychiatric ward and we often do wonder like were we causing ourselves more trauma by being in a psych ward um and i mean like i've had I've been in a situation in psych ward where I didn't have any of my clothes. I had to wear a special gown and um, I didn't even have my own bra or socks. Um, and I had to wear this um, for several days until I, like, I asked for the doctor like every day, like, can I get out of this now, please? And I had to beg for like my pajamas back. Um, and like that was just the most humiliating time for me and you know I didn't want anyone coming in to see me in it um it's just really awful and to be in like in a place where you're not familiar and you're just wearing this like horrible brown gown with like no like nothing else um and you're not allowed anything um it's just it's not care it's not care um it just (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my god dude, this is <laughs> awful <laughs> I mean yeah god, I know have, And this part that sucks excuse me yeah uh. and I think you know
1: I do talk about that happening to me because um when I like left hospital I was like researching like this protocol and like there's nothing exists anywhere about it um it's called a refractory gown um and like there's just no information about it and I feel like um it's not something that anyone is addressing and just the trauma of like you have to be strip searched to get into it um, by two nurses um and it's just I don't see how that's care like I'm sure there are like a whole range of so much better options for making sure that people are safe um, without having to completely dehumanize them, um, strip search them and like refuse access to like anything um, when they're kind of you know going through a really hard time. <laughs>
0: so, you know. I can tell you that probably the hardest part is feeling so helpless. Feeling like you have no say and no control and you're looking for help and in that help you're being further traumatized. This is not care. This isn't medicine. Medicine heals. The corruption of, of what medicine should be is what we're faced with.
1: Yeah. I remember being so ashamed of it at the time. Like I felt like we call it the shame suit. Um, me and some of the girls I know who have been in it. Um, we call it <laughs> right. the suit yes. of shame. Good term. Um, <laughs> but I remember even not telling other patients that were around me what it was. Um, So like one patient, um, she was allowed out. And like she went to the shops and bought me pajamas because she just thought I had no clothes. Um and like i was just like i couldn't even tell her what like why i was in this thing um and it's just it's so horrible cuz just everyone can see you and it's yeah it's just like this suit of shame of like look at her she's suicidal so she has to wear this um this horrible thing um and i mean it's happened to me and when I was in hospital, I kind of became friends with a group of girls. Um, and we're still friends now. And all of us who were in there for being suicidal were put into this thing at one stage or another. Um, and so I just feel like it's a really common occurrence that nobody is talking about um and nobody knows about because unless you're in there, you don't know what happens. Um, and just really the trauma and the yeah, just completely stripping away. Like before, even after you come in and you've been stripped, search your shoelaces are gone, the the like ties in your hoodie are gone, um, you know, you have to hand in your charger for your phone, everything else. Um, but then for that to happen when you're in there and there's, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to like prove yourself um, healthy enough to become
0: out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, and they, they don't even talk about, people don't even talk about this very often unless you've experienced it or you've been through it with yourself or a family, close family member. Mm-hmm. Then you also have that whole other layer of you have to navigate the space with other people and you've got people who want to bully you because they're not in a very good healthy place for themselves. Yeah. So then you're getting bullied or you're getting ostracized, you're getting picked on. You know, you might find one or two friends because you're lucky enough to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough space because you have people here who are really low, really suicidal. You might have people who are going through some mania. So they're like super all over the place. And then you might have people who are, you know, really struggling with hallucinations or voice hearing and that kind of thing. So you have all of these people in the same room trying to share the same space. Um, So, like, as an autistic person who would be very sensitive to, like, other people's emotions and stuff, it's really, really difficult. Um, And, you know, I was just really lucky that when I was there, um, three other girls around the same age as me going through the exact same thing as me. um, So we just kind of clung on to each other. But I know other times when I've been admitted, I've been there and it's just been all these middle-aged men and it's been really scary. And, you know, you're kind of, you're not sure, you know, you're not sure if you feel totally safe in that environment because yeah. um, you're not to, you don't know what what other people have ended up there and stuff. So it can be quite terrifying. Um, and yeah, I I'm not sure if lumping everyone who's Struggling with their mental health in some way, lumping us all in together in the same room is really um, can be defined as care um,
0: <laughs> because chaos. It, definitely it's chaos. You know the definition there. <laughs> 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 care versus is chaos. chaos. Yeah, there you go. There's, that's, that's your first article: care versus chaos on the healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. yeah. Zoe, thank you for sharing your experiences and thank you for sharing your insights on that. That No worries. It's one of the things that needs more discussion from us. Yeah. It really does. And yeah. anything that, that you can do with the training and the resources and the knowledge and experience that you have Will be greatly appreciated by the rest of us I can tell you that <laughs> so <laughs> yeah you're yawn on, on this side so if that those things have been really tough what's been the best part what's been the best part of this autism journey for you
1: um I think for me it's been knowing that I'm not alone in the way I struggle the things I struggle with um, I suppose one part is like being able to look back on my life and maybe the things that um, made me feel like I was a bad person or whatever. Or I was just acting up or just being a bold child and being able to reframe all of those things as, you know, the misunderstood child, the child who was actually really stressed out, but nobody kind of knew how to deal with it. Um, So being able to kind of reframe all of that so that I feel better about myself in general. Um, and know that I was always just trying my best to get along. And sometimes, you know, sometimes maybe I did things or reacted to things in a way that was kind of misunderstood and like, that's okay. Um, And then also I suppose, you know, I would have really struggled with friendships and keeping friendships and socializing and kind of realizing that there's like a whole group of people out there who struggle in the exact same way that I do. And actually when we socialize with each other, there aren't those challenges. There, it's it's easier. <laughs> so I think for me, kind of knowing that there's like a whole group of people out there who are the exact same as me and um, being able to just surround myself with lots of autistic people has been like the best thing for me. <laughs>
0: I agree. It has been the best thing, and one of the best things of the best things is that you created a wonderful space for us to come together and, and be together as autistic, yeah. in a very specific autistic space. So, yeah. if you have one thing that you would like to share with someone who is just starting their autism journey today, this is—they're just learning all this about themselves. What's the one thing you would like them to know as they begin their journey? Something that's really meant something to you.
1: Um. Yeah, I think kind of that process of where you're looking back on your life. Like maybe there's things that you've done in the past that you know never really made sense, or things that made you feel like you're a bad person or a horrible person. Um. And just taking the time to like go back. reflect on your life reflect on the things that might have happened in childhood and adolescence that really say like oh that was definitely an autistic thing um and being able to just reframe the narrative of that um because you know i do feel like we do accumulate kind of a trauma from not knowing and not being understood um and i actually got emdr therapy um and we went back and um looked at different things that happened and re like kind of reintegrated my opinion on what happened um, and that was really beneficial to me. so I would say like go to trauma therapy you know trauma therapy isn't isn't just for like really ex- you know really extreme horrible things, but it also can be just that accumulated things that have happened because we were trying to live as neurotypicals and but we weren't. So um, I would say definitely kind of try and find um, a way to just reframe those narratives that you've built up. And if you want to go to trauma therapy, I definitely recommend EMDR.
0: So many people have had success with that. And that's such a big, mm. it's, a, it's a tool. It's just a tool that's going to help. And it it's one of the things that really is where you have to when you're reframing those things and you're looking at them with this new knowledge when you look back at your life. The other part of that is also just the the compassion and the forgiveness of yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, forgiving yourself and yeah, I feel like it gave me so much compassion for myself and to like think about, you know, child Zoe um who was freaking out about wearing a car seat belt and you know nobody was like oh well, why is she suddenly refusing to wear a car seat belt and I was like but it's rubbing against my neck I can't stand it um and you know or like just getting in, like really freaking out about just really like small things that you know I'd look around and like nobody else is freaking out I couldn't understand why nobody else was really angry about certain things but um yeah just taking the time to to really just look back um, because I think we really will give yourself a, just a sense of compassion for who you are and like how far you've come, um, you know?
0: We are still here. We are yeah. still here. That is resilience. <laughs> that is strength. That is survival of the greatest degree, my friend. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. That <laughs> We are very courageous people, Zoe McCormick, founder of the Autistic Art Club. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your autism story. Thank you for sharing your beautiful gift to the autistic community and this beautiful autistic art space that happens on Saturdays. Yeah, four cycles and two cycles off, and you can participate in many different ways. You don't have to just show up to a Zoom. And you can show up to Zoom, but you can do it any way that works for you. You can also just do it privately through email or through Zoe's blog. I'll have all the links in the show notes below. Zoe, you are an incredible human. You are a blessing in my life, not just on Saturdays, but every day. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me and having like proper discussions about real things. Um, It's really, it's refreshing.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you thank you for speaking out thank you for sharing and being vulnerable vulnerable and courageous in sharing your story and your experiences yeah the more we do it the more we start the conversation the better it'll be for the next person yeah hopefully hey you're going to make a difference in this i know <laughs> i know you will If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late-identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or a recurring supporter through either Buy Me A Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener, and thank you for adding your voice to our story.